Well, if you could see God today, I don't, I don't mean go to heaven and see God. I mean, if God just right now in this moment showed up, the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus just was here. Not in a second coming context, but I mean, you could see God visibly, tangibly see God right where you sit. How would it change your life? What would change about your life? Would you have more confidence of the things you read about in your Bibles? Would you be less afraid? Would you have more assurance of your salvation? Would you be more compelled to share the gospel with the lost? Would you be more faithful to obey the commands you find in Scripture? Would you pray, your, pray more? Perhaps you would read your Bible more, having seen God. If your eyes saw God right now, would you be more faithful in your attendance on the Lord's Day and your commitment to the body of Christ? A number of years ago, a popular book was written by a gentleman named Don Piper. It was called 90 Minutes in Heaven. He had had a, uh, an experience where he went to heaven. And he began to travel around the United States telling people about this near-death experience he had where he was carried into the halls of heaven and and that they were to believe him because he saw God and how it had changed his life. Fundamentally, that book is quite wrong. Because what Don did was seek to put people's faith in him and his experience rather than in the revealed truth in Scripture. Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, Demanded to see God right then and there. Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, and that is enough. And perhaps this morning, that's where you're at. You're like Philip. If I just saw God, it would be enough. It's that one piece that would put me over the edge in my faith in Jesus. I would become a Christian if I could see God right now. I would put aside all of my worldly living, all of my sin and my unfaithfulness if I could just get a glimpse of Jesus. You know, Philip wasn't much unlike a lot of the characters we come across in our Bibles. Moses himself said, God, I will do this if I could just see you. Elijah, fearful for his own life. God, I will go down there and I'll deal with that wicked queen if I can just get a glimpse of you. Thankfully, Jesus nor God gives in to the desires of man. You see, Philip didn't need to see the Father in order to see God. He didn't need that. You see, Philip was driven more by anxiety than by truth. And those characters I just mentioned in the Bible and, and us this morning often are driven more by fear and anxiety than the truth revealed through Jesus Christ. They were afraid and their fear of the future was clouding their judgments. In the context of the disciples, they were afraid 
about what life would be like after Jesus' death. Jesus had already told them, and particularly in John 13 that we considered last week, that Jesus was leaving. All that they knew was about to change. Their world, the world that they had known for three years, was about to be turned literally upside down. What would life be like? And Jesus, in the context of this upper room discourse, is preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. His death was about to happen, and he would ascend back to the Father. What were his disciples to do between the time of his departure and his return? What were they to give themselves to? More importantly, how were they to get to Jesus once he left? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave his disciples nor us without the answers. Jesus taught through John 13 to 17 how you and I are to live in the in-between period between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. In our passage this morning, Jesus stills the fears of his disciples and diminishes our anxieties By teaching us this simple truth that seeing isn't believing. That seeing does not lead to faithful belief. But that hearing leads to believing. That hearing and believing is the way to see God. And that therefore we can enjoy peace until he returns. This is why Jesus begins and ends this chapter, chapter 14, by telling his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. The remedy to their fear and anxiety, the remedy to our fear and anxiety is believing in the truth about Jesus Christ. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. So so when you hear this morning Jesus' exhortation to believe, it is not simple. It's not easy. It is a fight of faith. But it is a fight worthy to take place. So I invite you this morning to turn to John chapter 14 as we consider this simple truth. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see you no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus teaches us in this passage in John chapter 14 and in the larger context of the upper room discourse beginning in 13 and ending in chapter 14, that the way to God and to eternal life with him is through the words and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus's words and his life, his his death for our death is what gives us eternal life with him. Therefore, as Christians, we must listen and believe his word if we are to see God. The the truth could be summarized quite simply this way. Hearing and believing the words of Jesus leads to seeing. 
Believing upon hearing leads to seeing. So often in this world, we think that sight leads to belief. If I see it, then I'll believe it. The gospel is completely upside down to that truth. If you want to see God, it begins by you hearing his word and believing in it. God never promises that he will reveal himself to you apart from the word of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we want to be word center. We want to, we want to center our lives around the word of God because it's the word that brings life. And so to think about this passage, I've organized it around the three questions the disciples ask. You saw them, didn't you? Did you hear the three questions? There's really four questions in the larger context. Peter had asked a question back in chapter 13, but we've moved on from him. And so here in chapter 14, we've got three questions, don't we? The first question we see, how will we know the way? Thomas, I love Thomas, doubting Thomas as we all, right? Thomas was, uh, was I need to see it to believe it kind of guy. Maybe he was like you. And then we heard Philip. Remember Philip? Philip was the guy who, who believed in Jesus because Jesus had revealed where Philip was before he called him. He's like, hey, Philip, you were actually under that tree when I called for you. Philip's like, what? That's crazy. You knew that about me? You knew exactly? You saw me before you like saw me? And remember what Jesus said to him. You think you're impressed by that? You think that's shocking? You think that's amazing? You're going to see greater things than that miracle, Philip. And so Philip himself asks a question. He says, listen, how are we going to see the Father? It's ironic, isn't it? The, the man who, who, who couldn't get his mind around the supernatural act where Jesus saw him, though he wasn't present with him, wants to know how he can see the Father, yet he's not present with him. The third question we see in this section is given by Thomas, I mean uh, by Judas rather, not, not the betrayer Judas, the guy we talked about last week, uh, Judas, uh, John says, not Iscariot. That is not the betrayer. He says this, how will we see you and not the world? Similar to Philip's question, uh, Judas wants to know, all right, Jesus, I think I kind of understand, like, you're going to be with us, but how are we going to see you and not the world see you? So we're going to think together about how right here, right now, today, Jesus is present with us and we can see him. Not with the eyes of this world, but the eyes of another world, a supernatural world that exists around us today. So let's consider these three questions by these three disciples this morning. First, how will we know the way? Jesus had prepared his disciples in chapter 13 and, uh, and then chapter 14. This is a reminder, your Bible is divided into chapters, but those chapters did not exist in the original autographs, the original. John didn't write these chapters out, and so they can feel a little cold and like, you know, like, oh, I got to forget about what I read. No, no, this is a continuation. This is the same conversation. Jesus has the same breath in his lungs as he is about to say in verse one, that let not your hearts be troubled. He has just told Peter, I am going away. And I'm going to come and get you. You're going to be with me in the future, but you can't be with me right now. And, uh, and the disciple Thomas kind of speaks up and he says, how will we know the way? How will we know the way? Well, Jesus here in this section promises his disciples that he is going to prepare a place for them. 
Look with me here at verse, uh, verse uh, 2, rather. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would have I told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Now, there's been much ink spilled over these, I go to prepare a place, this place, this many rooms place. And uh, in all the discussion about what this means and what heaven looks like, they miss the point of the passage, right? They get in the weeds and they forget what the meaning of the text is. And And the meaning, the main idea that Jesus has here in this text is simply this, that Jesus makes a spacious place for his disciples. A place where where they can gather, a place where there is plenty of room to accommodate. When Jesus says in this passage, there are many rooms, the idea here is that there is enough rooms for all of his disciples. There, heaven is a place where all those who repent and believe in him. There, there's not, God's not in heaven just saying, okay, we ran out of room. We, we need to cut off the door. We need to close the door down. Jesus makes clear that there is a spacious accommodation awaiting those who believe in him. Jesus makes a promise here that he is going to prepare a place, a place where they will dwell with him forever. What's, what is meant to diminish their anxiety and fear was the truth that their life on earth was temporary. Throughout chapter 14, Jesus again and again used eternal, uses eternal language. The spirit will be with you forever. I go to prepare a place and you will be with me. The idea is of a perpetual being with Jesus. An ongoing, there's an endless time in the presence of Christ. And so Jesus here prepares his disciples by saying, listen, I'm going away, but my going away is only temporary. I'm coming back to take you to a permanent location. Naturally, as one discusses this location, Thomas's mind is running. How are we going to get there? What's the route? What's the road? What, what interstate do we need to take? What exit do we need to get off on? What turns do we need to make, Jesus? How do we get there? And Jesus, of course, gives him perhaps one of the most famous Verses in the Gospel of John, the one that you know well, Jesus responds by saying to him, I am the way and the truth and life. Jesus makes emphatically clear that the only way to the Father is through him. Isn't that what he says there? Look there at verse 6. No one... And in case someone's confused this morning about no one, that means no one. No exceptions. No get out of free jail cards. No other way. It means exclusive. There's not many roads to God, but one. And it is through the person of Jesus Christ. St. Peter ain't at the pearly gates. Jesus is. Jesus is the only way in. Not your citizenship. Not your parents. Not your church membership. Not your baptism. Not your participation in the body of Christ. 
but only through the death of Jesus. Jesus is making emphatically clear here in this passage that he is the only way. That by dying on the cross, he is the way. He opens the way. A new way. The only way to God. All of the Old Testament anticipated this one way. All of it was a foreshadow. It it wasn't another way. Don't read your Bibles as if the Old Testament was another way to God and now there's this new way. No, 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 no. The old pointed to the only way. It was a foreshadow, a foretaste of a, of, of a lamb dying on a cross. This is why John began his gospel with John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For as Jesus said in John chapter 3, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or as he said just a few chapters ago in chapter 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All meaning all without distinction, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Brothers and sisters, we live in a pluralistic society. A society that believes that there are many ways to the divine. Even confused about what the divine is. And I'll be quite honest. If you're paying attention in this world. This world is not growing more inclusive. But exclusive. Exclusive in the sense that. There is one, there is one truth. That is out of bounds. In an inclusive society. And that is an inclusive view. That only through Jesus Christ can one be saved. There is a growing opposition and there will continue, there will continue to be. You will be on the wrong side of history in our society every time you believe in the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time you stand up and you say clearly and definitively that Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross is the only way you will ever have hope of seeing the eternal God. You can shout that from the Capitol. You can shout that from the State House. You can shout that from your corner street. And it will be unacceptable and out of bounds in our inclusive society. Because our post-Christian society has no room for a Jesus who declares that he is the only way. But yet we believe. Yet he is. That is our hope. And that is your only hope. We heard it clearly from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. No other hope outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to say, not only is he the way, but he is the truth. That he is the embodiment of truth. That there is no other truth outside of Jesus Christ. You see, in a pluralistic society, we have to have multiple truths, don't we? We can bend the truth to make it what we want. This is what you see behind uh, much of the uh, gender inclusivity in the language you see in the culture. I can be this morning a man and this evening I can be a woman or I can be whatever I want to be. I can declare my own truth, my own reality. Friends, can you... Recognize how this is so contra to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that these cannot coexist in a Christian mind. 
They, they, they simply cannot coexist in the gospel of Jesus Christ and both be true. This is what Jesus is making so clear. For the law was given through Moses, John says, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 7, Jesus tells us that he reveals divine truth. That the truth that he speaks is that of his father. That's what Jesus is communicating through this, through this, through this uh, chapter. Similarly, in chapter 12, Jesus will say this. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a command. What to say and what to speak. Notice here in this section, he says numerous times throughout this chapter that what I'm saying is not mine, but from the Father. This is what Jesus means by he is the truth. But also he is the life. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. John began the gospel by telling us that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. Or as Jesus told the women in John chapter 11 that I am the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. This is the simple truth he wanted to communicate to Thomas, to the disciples, and to us. Is that Jesus is the way. That if we follow his word, we'll make it. If we believe in his word, if we give ourselves to his word, then we will find our way back to the father. Jesus makes clear there in verses seven and eight or verses seven and then builds on it in verses eight and following. He indicts Thomas a bit here in this section. Look at verse seven. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Did you, do you understand Jesus is making a not so subtle statement about who he is? If you've, if you've seen me, he says, then you've seen God. If you want to see God, it's only through me you will ever see him. Thomas asked an important question, a question that must be on our minds every day. It must be upon our lips. It must be the answer we give to everyone around us. Whether it's welcomed or unwelcomed, it's the answer we give. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ. As Galatians 1 makes clear, that there is no other gospel. None. Paul even says, if I preached another gospel, Paul says, look, if I come around and say, hey, look, I've updated the gospel a little bit. I've, you know, made it a little better than it was before. He says, if an angel was to descend from heaven and wings flapping before you and proclaims you a message contrary to the one you received at first, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Brother, sister, this morning, the question for you is what other gospels are you believing in? Have you found another way? An easier way? A more comfortable way? A way that leads to what you want in life? Jesus says that following him is going to be hard. Have you found another way? There is no other way. Only through Jesus 
Only through denying yourself and following Him will you find life in Him. Through the death of Christ, Jesus opened a new and abiding way to God. Jesus led then to a follow-up question in His statement. And Philip here in verses 8 through 21 uh, really unpacks a lot of the truth that we thought about there in verses 1 through 7, and particularly this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, Jesus says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and Philip's like, all right, I think I know what you're saying, but maybe I don't understand your, what you're saying. And notice what he asked there, sort of the second question. Philip pipes up, he says, how we see the Father? Show us the Father right now. I want to see right now. Show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus responds really in two parts. First, his first answer and his second answer. His first answer is in verses 8 through 11. And then his second answer uh, really picks up in verses 12 all the way down through verse 21. Where then uh, Judas asks a question. Simply put, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you, will, you still don't understand me, Philip? Here it is. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, what does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean that he's the Father? Not at all. We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, three distinct persons of a triune, unified Godhead. Jesus is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. Uh, the Father's not Jesus. So, so we deny, as the Nicene Creed makes emphatically clear, any form of modalism, which means that God is just an actor wearing different masks. You know, when, when you see a play, oftentimes uh, an actor might have multiple roles within it. He, he might be one character in the first act and then another character in the second act. And you don't really pay much attention because he's wearing a mask. And so some have believed that, that, that Jesus' statement here means that, that Jesus just kind of puts on a, a Jesus mask. Uh, and then he takes it off and he puts the Holy Spirit mask on. And then God takes that one off and he puts the Father mask on. The Nicene Creed, Christians historically have denied the Bible teaching such error. But, but teaching that there are three persons to the Godhead. And each of them represented in this passage, are they not? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All having distinct roles and responsibilities within the Godhead. So we affirm this morning that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. As John chapter 1 verse 14 says, We have beheld the glory, glory is of the only Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus can say, because he's unified to the Father, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The way to see God is not seeing and believing, but hearing and believing the words of Jesus. This is why Jesus is so frustrated with Philip. He's like, I've been teaching you words. The words I give are the words of the Father. Therefore, they're his words and my words. The second aspect of his statement then becomes in verses 12 through 21. How will you see the Father? 
Jesus makes emphatically clear in this section that the way to see the Father, the way to see God, is through these greater works that will be done by his disciples. That the Father's glory will be made manifest among the disciples through a word-centered ministry. Notice what he says here. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, whoever believes in me also will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What was the one thing that Jesus' works were centered around? The word of his Father. Again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm just here to do my Father's will. I'm just here to do what my Father commanded me. And Jesus here is passing that baton off to his disciples and saying, your ministry is going to be a word-centered ministry. A ministry centered around communicating divine truth to those around you. This is what he means. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 12 makes clear that we are to reveal the Father by teaching his word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that's taught, not caught. You don't don't just sit sit in the the lazy boy, sitting back watching the the ravens, uh, and and all of a sudden receive a word from God. Ain't going to happen. If it does, you call your doctor, all right? No, Jesus says, what I'm going, what I've given to you, I want you to give to men. And later on in this chapter, he'll say, don't worry. He'll say, hey, don't write it down. It's all right. The Holy Spirit's going to tell you everything you need to know. He's going to remind you, you know, don't need to take notes. The Holy Spirit will remind you, he says. So this word centered ministry of evangelism, conversion and judgment. You know, a lot of people have made a whole bunch about these greater works. And they get confused, I think, a bit about the context. They think, oh, these greater works are miracles. Miracles like dead people coming out of the grave and, you know, people that are, you know, sick and they, they get up and lame and they start to walk. And brothers, and sisters, that's wonderful. That is cool. I mean, I am amazed by those things. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. We sang earlier, not in me. If you pay attention to that song, the song is, is making something clear that there is nothing that I can do to generate life in me. L- listen to this line. I, at the, this is the last line. I cannot cause my soul to live. Can you cause your soul to live? John chapter 3 makes clear, isn't it? Nicodemus, the wind blows where it is. Unless you be born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus says the greater miracle that occurs is when dead men and women, dead souls, come back to life through the preaching of the gospel. I don't think there is, there is no miracle greater than seeing someone living in sin being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Because what's so miraculous about it is there's nothing the preacher or evangelist can do to affect change. 
You, you, you thought it was Billy Graham that was leading all them people to Jesus? You were a fool to think that. He was a mere puppet in the hands of a God who was calling men and women to himself. He was, in, he was a donkey in the way. And God used him to speak. And that's what he does in your life. And those friends and those family members that you know right now, if you would just stop and be honest with yourself and stop lying and creating some other gospel in your mind and stop fooling yourself, do you believe Jesus is the only way? Do you believe the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ? Well, believe it and apply it to your lost family. Because if they're living in active, willful rebellion against God, they're going to hell. And you need to come to reality with that truth so that you can stop coddling them to hell. Because all you're doing is helping them get to hell quicker. And stop and call them out to repentance and faith. And lovingly commend them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our ministry is a one of word. A word ministry. But secondly, we see here that our word centered ministry is praying. Verses 13 through 14, Jesus says that this word ministry, this this father revealing ministry will take place, notice, through prayer. Isn't it a sad testimony that most Christians don't pray? If we be honest with ourselves, prayer is often an afterthought. It's It's a reaction to something bad. We get sick with cancer, so we pray. We're worried, so we pray. We see tragedy, we pray. We're reactive. Jesus here says, be proactive. Do you want to see the Father's glory revealed in your life? Do you really want to see God? Do you want to see change? Then pray. We don't devote so much of our time on the Lord's Day to praying because we think that it is just a mere religious act. It's because we believe as pastors that we want to affect real change. And that change is outside of ourselves. And so we pray to the one who can change the world around us. The only one that can change. Brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary, but give ourselves to the greater works that will be done in response to prayers. You want to see some amazing works in your life? You want to see some some true revival? It begins with prayer. It doesn't begin with a revival service because that just, that's just boring. It doesn't lead to, it begins with prayer. So let us be a people of prayer. Let us genuinely pray for one another. Pray for real transformation. And thirdly, in verses 15 through 20, let us understand our privileged position. This word-centered ministry is generated by the power of the Spirit and dwelt within us. Jesus' response to Philip is, Philip, your question misunderstands who you are. And and so it is, right? Our fear and anxiety is often motivated by, by misunderstanding about who we are. We forget that we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus pastorally, lovingly shepherds his disciples to understanding who they are in this word-centered life they are to live. In other words, here's the truth. Jesus doesn't put his arm around Philip. It'll be all right, buddy. It's going to be all right. What does he do? He teaches them truth. He tells them who they are. 
And brothers and sisters, that's true for us. What, what you need to hear is the truth about who you are in Jesus and about your privileged place in God's economy in the cosmos. Notice what he says here. First, he says, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, present tense, and will be with you, future tense. Jesus is saying, listen, Thomas, Philip, you're misunderstanding. I'm not going anywhere. I may not physically be with you, but my spirit is going to be in you. And this is a better thing for you. Because when I'm physically with you, I can't like be physically with you every minute of the day, can I? I mean, we've got to sleep, we've got to eat, we've got to go to the bathroom. You know, there's work to be done, we're separated. But if my spirit comes, if the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you, he will be with you forever and will not be separated from you. In other words, Jesus here is describing a better reality than the one they presently experience. And he's giving you and I, post-Pentecost, a picture of life that we enjoy today. Friends, we are privileged this morning because God is with us. We're not praying in our minds like trying to conjure up a God. Man, I just wish God was here. God, I wish you could hear me. God's like, I'm right here. Are you indwelt by the Spirit of God? Does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? Then the eternal God is with you today. You couldn't go to the farthest point in the, in the cosmos and God not be with you if you are dwelt by the Spirit of God. Notice Jesus says in verse 16 that he will be with you forever. The, the Spirit's abiding is one of assurance that, that we will never be without the Spirit, that this Holy Spirit is with us. I think as, as Christians and particularly as Baptists, because we're so I don't know, scared of the Holy Spirit talk, like all worried and everything like something crazy is going to happen, that we don't think hard enough about this. We don't meditate on this. The truth that that you carry the eternal God with you wherever you go. You don't need crosses and, and emblems up on your wall. The Spirit of God is in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe when you pray, when you open the Scriptures, that the author is with you? Right there in your home. You don't have to go to a special place. You don't have to be in this room. This isn't holy ground. You are made holy, Peter says, because you are dwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit, we are told, of truth. Verse 17, he's not the Spirit of lies. He's not the Spirit of falsehood, but he's the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive it because it doesn't know him. It hasn't been born again. It hasn't been made a home for him. This is the Spirit's work. And Jesus makes so clear a statement here. You know him, he says. He dwells with you and will be in you. 
Brothers and sisters, we have it a, a tremendous place that the Spirit of God is within us and that Jesus gives us eternal life through the Spirit's work. This is what he goes on to say as he, as he tells them in verses 18 through 19, listen, I'm giving you eternal life. It's okay. Friends, as Christians, what we need is a good dose of reality. We need a good dose of perspective. That's what we need every day. We've got to get reoriented because what the world does is it knocks us off course. I guarantee you, you if, you were, if you're a living, thinking human being, you know what happened this week should have got you off course a little bit. Kind of jarred you a little bit. Like, whoa, that was disorienting. Wow, that was like a roller coaster. But as Christians, we automatically, as you move that compass around and spin it around, what does it do? It always points back north. You can spin that sucker around as fast as you want. But what happens? That thing just jumps right back to north. And as Christians, we get jarred around. We get all messed up. We get off center. We get off north. But what we need to do is get centered back on the word of God. Because in the word of God is where the spirit uses to reveal the truth that we need. A cross-centered life, that cross-centered life of John, 7, of John 13, leads to a word-centered life. John 14. That ultimately we'll see leads to a church-centered life in, verses, in chapters 16 through 17. Centered on the word of God. Friends, do these word-centered ministries describe your activity as a Christian? Do you teach God's word? Are you communicating God's word? Are you, you yourself ingesting God's word, eating it? So that you can give it to others through evangelism by seeing greater works. I bet you our lives would be transformed if we if we saw more conversions. <laughs> I guarantee it. But we don't see it because we don't share it. And if we don't share it with the people outside of this room, we'll never see greater works and our life will be diminished because of it. And Jesus is inviting us into greater works, miraculous works, supernatural works that is better and more glorious than anything you will ever see on the screen and experience in your life when dead men and women come out of the grave and believe upon Jesus because of your word-centered life. Is your life centered around the word? Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We dealt with this last week. We'll deal with it more next week. But I don't want to just pass over verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, Jesus says this. If you love me, you'll live a word-centered life. In other words, my commandments will be valuable to you. If you love me. While our obedience does not save us, it does give us evidence of salvation. Obedience is the fruit of a good tree. Are you a good tree today? Abide in the word of God. Those who truly love him, obey him. Well, Philip, driven more by the immediate desire to see God's glory right then and there, was not what he needed. Philip had missed that Jesus was the one who revealed God's glory. And that you and I reveal God's glory to the world around us and in this gathering by being word-centered. And this led then Judas to ask a little follow-up question. All right, I think I get it. But 
But how again are we going to see you? How again will we see you and not the world? Verses 22 through 31 finishes up that final question. Look with me there. Judas asks, verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest, that is, reveal yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the words that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. The heart of of Judas's question and Jesus's response is understanding what life will be like without Jesus. How will we see Jesus in our everyday life without, you know, really seeing Jesus? How will we enjoy fellowship with Jesus? And Jesus says in this final passage, as we think about the context of living without Jesus and all of the insecurity and anxiety that that might generate in us. Friends, we can feel, as Jesus said, like orphans in this world. Just this morning, I was having a conversation about, you know, how so often we're so cozy with the world that we don't feel like orphans. We feel at home. We feel like, yeah, this, this is where I live. This is... But Jesus describes to his disciples a very jarring picture. A, a picture in which they're going to feel like orphans. They're going to feel like aliens. They're going to feel all alone. And Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be sad at my departure. But rather live a joy-filled life rejoicing. And so finally, we see here that the way to follow Jesus is one of joy and rejoicing. That as Christians, we are to have lives filled with joy as we await the return of Christ. We are to enjoy because we have this intimate relationship between the Father and Son. Friend, if you want something to think about better than a Ravens football game this afternoon, uh, look there at verses 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. (laughs) And my father will love him and and will come to him and and will make our home with him. Do you doubt God's love for you? That through the power of the spirit, the the triune God dwells within you. Friend, don't, don't miss that point this morning. We see also that we will enjoy the Spirit-inspired Word. Now, contextually, this is written to the disciples. These things I have spoken to you, verse 25, while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, the Holy Spirit does not give new revelation to us today. This was in the immediate context, the historical context to the disciples, the ones whom the spirit would inspire their words that are contained in the New Testament. But it also is a ministry, an ongoing ministry of the spirit to give remembrance to our minds of the word of God. In other words, when you sit down with the Bible, you sit down, if you are a Christian, with the author himself dwelling within you. This is why we pray for illumination and understanding that God might speak not new revelation, not clouds, words written in the sky, 
Or just, you know, I think God wants me to do that. Please stop saying that. Um, But rather, we are to speak the words given to us here in the Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We enjoy an inspired word. But also we see that we enjoy peace with God and with one another. This is a truth we'll see kind of unpacked in uh, particularly chapters 16 and 17. Notice here in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give you. In other words, I don't give it to take it away. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Fear and anxiety is not a virtue that Christians ought to pursue. But peace. Peace. Trust. Lord, this world is unsettling. This last year, 2020, has been quite unsettling. Distorting, disturbing, weird, strange. I don't think we truly understand the the impact it has on us. But we must not be given into fear and anxiety. We will get sick. We will die. We are not immortal. We're, our bodies are wasting away, Paul says, second by second, day by day. But while our outer is wasting away, our inner, our eternal spirit is being renewed day by day. We are a, an outer obsessed people. We care about what we look like. We care about health. and Nothing wrong with being concerned with germs and being healthy. And nothing wrong with those things. Of course, we don't walk around just, you know, licking doorknobs and stuff. That's strange. Don't do that. But at the same time, we have to entrust ourselves. Outside of the context of the pandemic, perhaps what what is growing you anxious this morning is this unsettled world we live in. Look, I'll be completely honest with you. There is perhaps legitimate reason for fear because of some of the platform positions that the power that is now in control in Washington, D.C. And if I let my mind go there and dwell there, I can forget some truth about who Jesus is and about this command he gives to me and to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Those are two commands. Do you love Jesus, he says? Then obey my commands. Keep my word. While the events of Jesus' death and his imminent departure would be shocking to the disciples. They were not to be given into fear or anxiety, and neither should we. Our privileged position as disciples of Jesus Christ and our unique relationship with the triune God transforms our journey in this hard and fallen world. As we rejoice with anticipation that Jesus is coming again, 
Friend, the way to God and to eternal life with him is only through his word and through his death. And so let us be people who have ears who listen, who are regularly opening and hearing God's word, gathering on the Lord's day to hear and believe in his word that we might see God manifest among us every day until we shall see him face to face when Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified in our lives, through transformed lives, through us becoming more and more like Jesus. Help us, we pray. Holy Spirit, we we give ourselves, our wills to you. We we truly give ourselves to the power of your, your transforming work. Transform us. Make us into the image of Jesus. Let us Stop resisting and give in to Christ for your glory and our good, we pray.